You know, you would think over time we would learn. But one thing that never fails to shock and surprise us is this. When people become Christians, they don't at the same moment become nice. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it. When people become Christians, they don't at the same moment become nice. This always comes as something of a surprise. But why? Why should it? Why should that shock us? Have you not heard that from folks? Maybe you've heard it from those within the church. Maybe you've heard it from your non-Christian friends. In fact, maybe that's the very reason they point to why they don't want anything to do with church or the people of God. They will say something like this. Well, they were nasty to me. And you know the worst part? They call themselves Christian. Now, I understand. That. Look, I don't want anyone to be nasty to anyone. I am, I am, I am staunchly anti-nasty. Get that on, on record. But I don't, but, but, but I'm always shocked by their shock. I always want to say, you know what a church by definition is, right? A church is a body that proclaims God saves sinners. <laughs> like, so here you have a group of people gathered who have freely admitted. In fact, step one of their membership into this body was to freely admit, I am so messed up. I am so hopelessly lost. I will split hell wide open. That's what a rebellious, wicked person I am unless the God of glory intervenes. I am so broken. I need salvation. You get all those people together. You call it a church. And when we discover there's a real life sinner among the righteous, oh, clutch my pearls. However, did this happen? Admitting you're completely and hopelessly messed up is literally a step of membership into our body, isn't it? I believe that I can't save myself. When people are shocked by the sinful behavior of Christians, to me it's like if you were allowed to sit in on a 12-step AA meeting and you left that meeting and I said, hey, what do you think? And you said, well, quite frankly... I'd say a lot of those people struggle with addictions. <laughs> well, what'd you think you were at? And so when we discover a real-life sinner among the righteous, maybe we all just need to go back to where this whole thing started. You know, in 12-step, they stand up, and, hi, my name's Tom, and I'm an alcoholic, you know? Maybe we need to stand up every Sunday in church. Hi, my name's Tom, and I'm a sinner. That sets the bar for where we all are and where this whole thing starts. If we expect the church to be a country club for mom and dad and junior, well, then you should be shocked at what you discover. But if the church is an emergency room for broken hearts, it's bound to be messy. Now, I'm not saying you need to stay in the spiritual ICU for years and years. That's another topic for another sermon. Growing in Christ, spiritual maturity, sanctification... All I'm saying is that's where we all start. And it's certainly where the Christians of Corinth started. For those of you who have been walking through the church, seeing my new uh, uh, posters for my new sermon series, When God Came to Sin City. I'm talking about 
Corinth. I hope you didn't walk through and think, yeah, I know where that is. <laughs> okay? Let's talk about the Corinthians in 50 AD. The people of ancient city of Corinth had a reputation in the ancient world as an unruly, hard-drinking, sexually promiscuous bunch of people. Corinth in 50 AD, a little background. You can go ahead and begin turning to 1 Corinthians if you want. This is obviously going to be a series on 1 Corinthians. Corinth in 50 AD was a seaport town, very wealthy, attracting folks from all over the Roman Empire, really the known world, right? So you had the free flow of commerce, importing and exporting, but what gets imported and exported is more than just goods and merchandise from all over the world, but rather cultures are imported and exported and ideas. And so in a way, you can think of it this way. If you wanted to leave mom and dad and your small town and you wanted to make it big, you would strike out and you'd take that uh, road to Corinth. The idea was if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Which means, of course, that you now have a city that is full of these young, hard-driving professionals who are completely free from all the social constraints of family. They left the Bible Belt, right? And now they're here in this wild city. They're young, they're full of energy, and they're full of money. It was a city with so much wealth, naturally it became a producer of entertainment and the arts. It was a wild city. No other way to say it. Dominating the city was the Acrocorinth, a hill of over 1,850 feet on which stood a large temple to Aphrodite. If you'll recall, when the Romans uh, took over the, 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 the Greek Empire, in the case of Corinth, they, they knocked it to the ground. But of course, quickly rebuilt it. Caesar knew a good thing when he had it and became this popular uh, seaport town dedicated to Aphrodite, who was the Greek goddess of love. The 1,000 priestesses of the temple were sacred prostitutes, and they came down into the city each evening and plied their trade on the streets. The cult was dedicated to the glorification of sex. The idea was what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It was so bad, the ancients actually used it as a verb. Several commentators pointed this out. They would use it as a verb. To Corinthianize was to live... To, to do an act of such wild debauchery that regular verbs failed you. I mean, listen, it's pretty bad when your city becomes a verb. That's bad. Most commentators say, if you can imagine, take New York City, Hollywood, and Las Vegas and roll them into one wild seaport town, and there you got Corinth. And then, the craziest thing happened. God came to sin city. Paul arrives preaching this gospel. This, this, uh, they can't understand what he is at first. This, the, he would go to these synagogues. Is he Jewish? Well, he's, he's sort of, but he's talking about this Messiah has come, and he proclaims that Jesus, the Messiah, has risen from the dead. And y'all, people get saved. And not just a few people. Like, lots of people get saved. You can read about all this in the book of Acts, chapter 18. All these people get saved, and now you've got these utterly worldly people who have no clue how they're supposed to behave, and now they've been completely discipled by their world, and now they've been transformed by the power of the gospel. The apostle Paul stays with them for a year and a half as their pastor. He gets them trained up in the gospel, and then after that year and a half, he felt led, as he often did, to move on and goes off on these missionary journeys. So some time goes by, and he's always anxious to hear how they doing back in Corinth you know it's a wild city I can't believe what we got to see God do I was there a year and a half it was awesome wonder how they're doing 
Well, he gets a report from a family. You know, you know how it is. Like, I think things begin trickling in little by little. But he gets a report from this uh, Chloe's family that basically things are not good. In fact, things are falling apart. And after he gets that report, sure enough, he gets a letter from the Corinthian church confirming, yo, we need help. <laughs> it's a mess. A large church. Here's how one commentator put it. Full of cliques each following a different personality. Many Christians were very snobbish. At fellowship meals, the rich kept to themselves and the poor were left alone. Very little church discipline, a lot of laxity was allowed in both morals and doctrine, unwilling to submit to authority of any kind. Integrity of Paul's own apostleship frequently questioned. A distinct lack of humility and consideration for others. Some being prepared to even take their fellow Christians to court and others celebrating their newfound freedom in Christ without the slightest regard for the less robust consciences of fellow believers. In general, they were very keen on more dramatic gifts of the Spirit, but they were short on love, the kind of love that was rooted in the truth. And of all the ways, Paul could have responded, right? So everybody got it? He's received this letter from from the Corinthians, and now he writes back. And and what we see in 1 Corinthians, of all the ways he could have responded, because you know he was hurt by that. You know it broke his heart to hear all that trouble, but he didn't lash out. He didn't take him to task. He didn't say, how could you do this? I taught you better. The end. On to 2 Corinthians. No, he didn't heap a bunch of guilt and condemnation. He did, interestingly, he didn't say, honestly, when your church has problems like that, you should go to the church down the street, because there you'll find the perfect church. Okay? You know, it's always the perfect church. And anytime you leave, it is perfect for six weeks. He didn't, he didn't disown them as brothers and sisters, did he? He never disowned them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's what he did. He took their specific issues one at a time. And the book of 1 Corinthians can be divided into five main sections with a final greeting. And we're going to take one each week. It almost reads like a series of essays that, that he writes up. He's like, okay, now you wrote me about this? Here's my response. Now about this. So he first he's going to deal with divisions, cliques in the church, disunity. Then he's going to deal with sexual purity and issues of marriage. And that's in chapters 5 through 7. Then food. Not like, do you like this kind, do you like this kind, but food that's sacrificed to idols and so forth. Then how the church gathers, how it takes the Lord's Supper, how it uh, 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 deals with its, its, its uh, congregational meetings. We're getting so out of hand, nobody could understand anything anybody was saying and nobody could hear from God clearly. So he talks about how the church gathers. And then some people were saying, the resurrection's not really gonna happen. And he ends with, uh, okay, the resurrection. Takes him each time so gently, takes him by the hand and brings him back to where everything started. In each of these sections, the answer to the problem, it's very important to understand, get your head around all of 1 Corinthians as an overview. In each of these sections, some part of the gospel story that God saves sinners, some part of Jesus coming to earth, living a sinless life, dying a sinner's death, and rising again is going to be the answer to each of these areas. He's basically trying to teach his people how to see all of life through gospel lenses. And if in some small way by the end of this series you see more parts of your life through gospel lenses, success. The series will have been a success. That's going to be our goal in this series. People love 1 Corinthians and have for years. You know why? Because it's an example of, 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 of a pastor trying to apply the gospel to very specific things. And we read way back 50 AD, we don't have the same issues they had. Okay, I don't, I don't think uh, 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 warehouse groceries is sacrificing any of their meat to an idol before they put it out, okay? 
You understand? I, it's not the exact same issue, but it's the principle. Very quickly, you see, the gospel principle can easily, easily be applied to whatever issue we are facing today. And so this is going to be our outline. This is how we're going to follow it. With one change. Allow me to make a programming change. Next Sunday, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. And so I thought, let's do it this way. Instead of taking them in order, will you allow me to pull that fourth one? And let's make it next week. Since we're going to take the Lord's Supper anyway, let's go ahead and talk next week about the church gathered, and we'll deal with chapter 11, uh, the Lord's Supper. Then we'll come back right in order and talk about sexual purity and issues of uh, marriage, and then food, and we'll end on the resurrection. And then it'll be Advent. You believe that? Okay, all right, I'm getting ahead of myself. So that's the overview. All right. That's the overview. If, uh, if you recommend this, uh, 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 you, you have a friend or uh, somebody who wants to hear this, you, everything I just said is an overview for the whole series. I won't do that again for every other message. I'll just jump right in. So this is important. If you watch this online, watch this before you watch any of the other ones. All right. Uh, let's get right to it. Let's, let's do the first one today. In our time remaining, let's try to do uh, divisions. Let's talk about that. The first problem Paul brings up. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He greets them and then he reminds them of who they are in Christ. And in verses 4 through 8, he brings up the first problem. And that you'll see he does that throughout the book of Corinthians. He brings up the issue and then he shows how the gospel is the solution to whatever issue they're facing, some part of the gospel. So here's the first, the first problem. Start in verse, uh, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, and then he gets specific. What I mean is each, of, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. Cephas, you know, is the, the same word for Peter, the apostle Peter. Still others, I follow Christ. Ah, divisions, cliques, factions, and they align themselves around their favorite celebrity preacher. And uh, uh, they were saying nasty things about other people's type of Christianity. And that's usually what happens. The, uh, the followers of Paul probably emphasized some doctrine. And the followers of Apollos probably emphasized some doctrine. And as these emphases grew larger and larger, because they emphasized that, they would say, well, then you must not also think this. And they began to have these factions. And so I, I wanted to, uh, uh, to really get our heads around it to, to ask the simple question, why do Christians fight? Why do Christians fight? Well, let's look at these divisions. Paul. I, I follow Paul. Ah, uh, that's the part of Corinth. You know who those are? Those are your old timers. Those are the ones who look around at every business meeting at Corinth and they go, I was here when Paul started this thing. I'm a charter member of Corinthian church. And so they're always pulling rank. I don't mind pulling rank on you noobs. Okay, I was the charter member. I was here. Well, then you had also, you had these well-educated elites. And they, they were blown away. They loved it when Apollos came. Apollos had all the, 
academic credentials and used all the fancy rhetoric and they loved it because Apollos would help them with apologetics and would lead them logically through the faith and he would emphasize things and so those who followed Apollos loved to talk about how the wisdom uh, that, uh, that, that their brand of Christianity put forth. Meanwhile, you had Jewish, presumably Jewish Christians Right? These are Jews for Jesus. These are Messianic Jews, and they followed Peter. And they would say, look, we have the true faith. After all, Peter walked and talked with Jesus, not Paul, not Apollos. And after all that fighting happens, the super sanctimonious, super spiritual said, well, you all follow Paul or Peter or Apollos. We just, we follow Christ. To which you could hear the whole church groan, oh, please. Oh, all right. You know, well, <laughs> you know the ones. Well, we've heard all of your opinions. Now, here's what the Lord says. Oh, give me a break, right? <laughs> so, Paul responds in verse 13 with, my version says, you got to be kidding me. No, <laughs> but it might as well say that. Paul gets a little, uh, a little feisty here. He says, come on, is Christ divided? Hmm? Is that how it works? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? One of the fun things about watching little kids when they first learn to play sports, whether it's soccer or basketball, you see them and they're all, they all congregate right around the ball and they're smashing it into each other. And eventually the coach will yell, same team. This is Paul yelling, same team. Is Christ divided? Oh, oh, did, what, did Paul crucify? Christians are not divided into these, uh, well, I follow Paul, I follow Paul's. We're all pointing to Jesus. It's the body of Christ. Even if you don't like these people, they're indispensable. And even if these people don't like these people, they're indispensable. And all these sinners have one thing in common. They're to deflect all praise and glory, not to a person, but to Christ. He goes on to say, these preachers and teachers, Apollos and Peter and all the rest, Paul says, myself included, we're just servants pointing people to Christ. Paul, you know, I love this. Was Paul crucified for you? I, ne- I never died for you. I never gave you the authority to be baptized. That's all from Jesus. I'll never forget meeting with a discouraged pastor. He was essentially the victim of a pretty, pretty nasty power play. And there was a longtime member who was really trying to run him off. There's no other way to say it. And uh, he told me what he said, and my heart broke. He said that the guy looked at him and told him, Preacher, I was here long before you got here, and I'll be here long after you're gone. This is my church. And my heart broke because I just, you can't imagine King Jesus in that room when that guy said that, Jesus going. Um, Actually, I was here long before you got here, and I'll be here long after you're gone. And from heaven, I came and sought a bride. And with my own blood, I paid for her. So technically, this is my church. God help any of us if you have a pastor who says, this is my church. You're the Lord's people. It's a great delight and joy of my life to get to be part of shepherding. But I've never, you know full well, I'm not the capital G good shepherd. I too have a shepherd. Same, same for God's people. 
Pastors love their people, but no pastor ever died for you. If the only way for you all to be saved would be to give up my son, I'm so sorry. See, deacons and staff members, they love their people. No deacon ever died for you. Oh, but the good shepherd, he washed the church clean with his own precious blood. He gave her the symbols of water and body and blood. And you know what? It occurs to me, here at this altar where people pray, you do realize tonight, after every light is turned off in this sanctuary, and everybody has left their praying, you do realize there's one who will still be kneeling, crying out for you, interceding for me, and long before we got here. So what causes fights? What causes fighting among Christians? He's saying, Paul's saying, you forgot all this. He's bringing them back to the gospel. James 4 puts it this way. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires? So you're thinking, I'm not getting what I deserve. Oh, that's worldly wisdom. That's not how you got saved. We are a community gathered of saved sinners. That's not how you got all these blessings. They came from God. Why did these Christians fight? That's the question. Here it is. I only got one point. Here it is. I I tried to make it a good one. This is the only thing you have to write down. It's literally the only point of the whole sermon. Why do Christians fight? They forgot how they got what they got, so they fought. Yeah, I'm a doctor, Dr. Seuss. They forgot how they got what they got, so they fought. You got it? They forgot how they got what they got, so they fought. What do I mean? Look at verse 18. Look, if you got saved because of worldly wisdom, you would have never gotten here. You've forgotten that. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You didn't get saved through worldly wisdom. Look how this plays out. Look back at verses 21 through 23. For since in the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Look at this. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. He's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Let me explain. The Christian message is some form of this. Though I cannot prove it to you with signs, nor can I reason or argue you into the faith with impressive logic, by faith I believe that God came to the earth he'd created in the person Jesus Christ, and after living perfectly, he died on a Roman cross to redeem the rebel humans, and we know he did all that because he rose from the dead, and all who take his life enter into an altogether new God life. And the Jews would say, well, can you prove that with signs and wonders? At least these Jews Paul's talking about. No, I can't. I mean, Jesus did some miracles, but it's funny. When people actually uh, commanded that Jesus perform his miracles on demand to remove no doubt, he never did it. He would refuse it. So it seems like he didn't want his people convinced by signs and wonders. The most 
Amazing sign of all would have been if he could come down off the cross. And there, maybe that's why some of those uh, high priests were mocking him. Maybe there was a sincere hope. Come down off the cross. Even now, if you will save yourself, we will know you're really the Messiah. But if you don't, if you die on that cross, it will prove only one thing. You're not the one. See, for, for these Jews that don't believe, you, can eat, you, can, you can't have both. You can either have Messiah or you can have a guy who's crucified. But you can't have both. Deuteronomy says, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree, right? So everyone who's crucified is under the curse. And, and, and the, doesn't the Bible say the Messiah will show himself in power and his kingdom will never end? So you got these Christians preaching that Messiah, Jesus, was crucified. And you got these Jews saying, that is exactly why we cannot believe in him. If you guys would leave out the cross, they might say, focus more on the feeding of the 5,000, I'd be fine with Jesus. I love some of the good social things he did. But what you're calling a miracle is to us an anti-miracle. You guys have made your main selling point the, the thing that drives us away. So it's a stumbling block to the Jews. Well, how does this gospel message fare with the Gentiles? Not much better. Gentiles are here, they're called Greeks, are looking for the wisdom. They even have a God dedicated to wisdom. Well, how's this for wisdom? God came to a backward Roman province and died on a cross outside of town. And this was somehow saving people? <laughs> Not just the people of that province and religion, mind you, but like all people. This is what, this is what saves the people, getting crucified on a, on a trash heap in some backward Roman province called Jerusalem. That really, not very marketable as wisdom, is it? In fact, it sounds foolish. And yet, look at verse 24, and yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God by faith, hallelujah, God has opened some eyes and softened some hearts, and once they see it, they go, there it was. I've even met Christians that when they first became a believer, they'd say to me, I don't know how, but now everything I thought was so foolish, now it's all so obvious. I don't know how I missed it all those years. Exactly. Look again at the message of Christ, but this time through the eyes of faith. God created the world. In the garden, there's a tree. The tree represents man's free choice to either be faithful to God or disobedient. The first man, Adam, chooses sin. Paradise is lost. And then God selects one weak group of people and says to their father, I'll bless the world through your seed, Abraham. And when all hope seems lost, he rescues this one group of people from bondage in Egypt and he gives them laws and prophets and prepares for the fulfillment of the promise that will bless the world. And from the direct descendant of Abraham, Jesus of Nazareth is born. He fulfills every prophecy. He looks totally powerless in the garden. And in the ultimate moment of weakness on the cross, he's actually triumphing over sin by burying it. So what looks like a lack of power, death, is actually preparing us for the greatest display of power the world has ever seen Easter Sunday morning's resurrection what wisdom what power see God's foolish plan would still be better than the wisest plan of man it is a strange way to save the world from worldly wisdom but the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men the offensiveness is actually part of its wisdom it forces us to throw off our self-reliance and only the Holy Spirit can convince us of that. You didn't get saved because of your worldly wisdom, Paul's saying. It's from the Holy Spirit. See, you're fighting with other Christians because I think you forgot how you got what you got. They forgot how they got what they got, so they fought. 
And you didn't earn your place at God's table. He brings them back. Look at verse 26. Let, consider your calling, brothers. And I would ask you to do that this morning. Think about, those of you that are in the Lord, think about how God called you. Did you, did you, did you walk up to God? Like You ever see these athletes on signing day? Signing day is when an athlete, a big deal is going down, or a, a big uh, a blue chip athlete's going to sign with a particular college, and they've got these hats laid out in front of them. And then in the dramatic moment, they reveal to the press and everybody that this talented wide receiver or this incredible home run hitter is going to go to. Boston College, womp, womp, you know, or whatever, right? Right? And all the SEC's up in arms, you know, right, 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 right. And everybody's cheering, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach and all this, right? Uh, is that how you got saved? Is that how you got saved? You called a press conference and you said, uh, I know I got some problems. I a few sins here and there, but by and large, I'm a pretty good, good person. I'm a pillar of the community. I got Team Satan over here. I got Team Jesus. And I'd like to announce to everybody, Jesus is sure lucky to have a guy like me on his team. Oh, were we not rebels running from the grace of God, every one of us? And everybody who's been a prodigal knows that feeling. But everyone who's been an older brother has to believe. Don't you believe like me? If you grew up in church, the odds of you finding grace were even lower. Because you were tempted to be a Pharisee, weren't you? And so if you're like me and you're a church kid, isn't it a wonderful miracle of God that even you got saved? Isn't it? Running from God in rebellion. But he outran us. He ran faster than us. And with his own blood, he bought us. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Not for nothing, Paul here is talking about how he doesn't need a bunch of worldly wisdom, just Christ crucified. And this is some of the most flowery, impressive rhetoric. <laughs> so I think there's some, a, a double layer of irony going on there. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Look carefully at that last verse. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus. It's not what you did, it's what he did. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with acknowledging you're God's welfare case? You're his charity case. Don't admit it if you've ever thought this. Don't admit it. In fact, when I give the illustration, say, I would never think that. That'll make me feel better. But somebody in front of you at the grocery store and they're, you tell they're kind of down on their luck and they pay with the, with the food stamps and the, you know, the welfare and everything. And then they, they walk out to their car and their car is 10 times nicer than yours. And you think, I paid for that, you know, with my taxes, I paid for that. Now, you, you've never thought that, have you? Good. Okay. Good. Uh, well, if you've ever been tempted to think that, uh, the only thing I can say is this not so fast. Imagine us at the store of blessings. It's different than a grocery store. It's a store where you get blessings. And you're bloop, bloop, just checking out all these blessings. And you've got all these blessings. And uh, <clears throat> behind you is Jesus in line. And you get all these blessings. And Jesus knows you can't pay for that. 
You can't pay for that. You don't deserve that. You didn't deserve that. You scan all these blessings and you put them in the bag. And the lady says, how would you like to pay with this? And you say, I plead the blood of Jesus. This is all because of Jesus. Yep. Just put it on Jesus' tab. (laughs) And Jesus is going, well, I paid it all. Yeah, I... You take all those blessings and you walk out and Jesus says, and look at, and you walk out and you walk out into a nicer eternity than he was hanging on the cross, right? And Jesus thinks, now you know, I, I paid for that. Don't you see? We're the welfare case of God. And if you would say, no, 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 not me. Not me. I don't want to be anybody's charity case. Oh, then you're not a Christian. That's all a Christian is. Is a welfare case of God. We, we, We offered nothing. In fact, you say, no, but what about my good deeds? You borrowed the grace to do the good deeds. So your good deeds just spun you further into his debt. And he's okay. His grace is amazing. And it's limitless. But I think when we fight is when we forget that. That's what a Christian is. God's charity case. They forgot how they got what they got. So they fought. Close with verse 31. There is something to boast about. If you're going to boast... If you're going to, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you're going to uh, blow a trumpet, blow a trumpet for God, right? There is one to boast in. In other words, let all praise and glory not go to any person. Like, like, like we can dial down any sort of uh, uh, pride or envy that would cause us to fight. Why? Because we're all these rescued sinners and the only boast is to boast in the lord i think it's wonderful that i get to preach every sunday i think that's great that the church picks one sinner to remind all the other sinners that god saves sinners (laughs) what a delight every sunday to say isn't it good to be his rescued people see doesn't that change our posture chuck's going to come and lead us in a time of response and invitation as he comes i just i guess i want us to get our heads around this this beautiful image of boasting in the lord and I have this, this illustration in my head of, uh, of these catastrophic floods. You've seen them on TV. You know, a hurricane will come through and the uh, creek will be wiped away and entire roads look like rivers. And occasionally you'll see this Coast Guard responder in a helicopter, these helicopter rescues. You know what I'm talking about, right? They're very dramatic. Now, can you imagine two men in a catastrophic flood they're both clinging to the, you know, the, 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 the tree branch. One is very well-connected, wealthy, good-looking. The other is homeless, in rags. And the Coast Guard rescuer comes down, gets one, gets the other, puts them in that little life preserver thing, pulls them up on the helicopter, gets them safe to land. They're wearing the emergency blankets. The news reporters are there. Let me ask you, when, what is their attitude when they're interviewed by the local TV news reporter? Does the rich man boast in his rescue as if his status made it a foregone conclusion? Well, of course, I'd be rescued. I'm so well-connected. <laughs> does, the, does the poor man think, yeah, it's a miracle I got here. I'm surprised they even... No, no. The question doesn't even make sense. You've seen these interviews. Never has someone said, well... Yeah, I did a pretty good job of getting hung up on that tree branch. Yep, yep, I'd say this is all about me. No, what do they say? They say, this person saved my life. The other guy, this person saved my life. The status that defined me before my great salvation is meaningless. The one thing you need to know about me is I was rescued. 
So if we're going to brag about somebody, if we're going to talk about somebody, we're going to talk about our rescuer. We're going to brag about our rescuer. All the focus goes on the rescuer. When it comes to our salvation, Paul is saying, oh, every time a Christian fights, it makes no sense because you should be pointing to our rescuer. So maybe that'll apply those gospel lenses this week. Maybe you'll be in a difficult situation. You'll be able to say, wait, who is this person? Who am I? Are we not sinners saved by grace? Can I dial down the pride, dial down the envy, dial down the malice? I'm just a, I'm just a rescued one. And so are they. And so if we're going to boast, let's boast about Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great rescue. Thank you, God, that we can trust you. And thank you, O oh Lord, that you save sinners. And God, forgive us when we forget how we got what we got. And that leads us to fighting. And take us by the hand. Lead us back over and over to that simple gospel story that when we were lost, you found us. You saved us. Let our boast be along with the choir of voices from every Bible-preaching church across this whole county and state and country and world all about the one who saved us. And grant that unity that, oh, it's so sweet. And grant that unity, God, to be continued here in our church and spread abroad in churches, Lord, as we consider our great rescuer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.